Day 18 of National Podcast Post Month is here. We're well into the second half of the month, NAPOD POMO 2023. And we are returning to the Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame. This marked a first for Train and I for Geek Hall of Fame inductees in that we inducted our first real-life person. And I think anybody who knows the name of Forrest J. Ackerman will understand why we inducted him. But if you haven't heard of the name, then by the end of the show, you will truly understand why he may have been called the world's first fanboy. So we'll step back in, lesser-known Geek Hall of Fame. This was our sixth inductee, Forrest J. Ackerman. Geekville Radio. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and geeks and geekettes. This is Seth, a.k.a. Xandrax, the mayor of Geekville, continuing with the Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame. And I've said before that no person would not be considered as long as they didn't fit what probably the mainstream would call as an as an A-lister, so there, you know, no Superman or anything like that. But we are open to heroes, villains, franchises, titles, and... In this case, we are going to induct our first real person into the lesser-known Geek Hall of Fame, and that is Forrest J. Ackerman. And there's a lot of people out there, I think, who have heard the name but may not truly understand who he was and uh, what he did. And I'll pass it over to my usual co-host, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock, in the soft padded cell. Now, is it fair to say that he might have been one of the world's worst fanboys. I believe I also referred to Forrest as the real-life Jimmy Olsen because of all the friends he made. Does that sound fair to you? It does. And before we get going, all aboard, ladies and gentlemen. It's three more days to Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Three more days to Halloween. Silver Silver Shamrock. Shamrock. So now that that song's in your head, you're welcome. Uh, (laughs) And we'll be in there probably until Halloween Day gets here. Yes, he was the ultimate fanboy. Um uh, I, I, of course, suggested this because I'm more the horror guy than Seth is. Seth, I think you had told me when I suggested you had heard the name, but like in your description, you didn't really know what, who he exactly was or what all he had done, correct? Yeah, I mean, I had seen his names in books, you know, like like Asimov and stuff like that. Some of those novels that I had read and mm-hmm. uh, comics and such where he might get like a special thanks. That That was where right. I had heard the name from. Right. I had heard the name uh, originally from, I want to say, Fangoria magazine. And later on, we'll talk about how pivotal I think Forrest was in the, the building of those fanzines that we we have now. And of course, we both enjoyed it. It's like, you know, Starlog, Fangoria, stuff like that when we were growing up. Uh, but uh, I did a little research on him when I was younger. Of course, this is before the Internet and just found out that. This dude was, like you said, the ultimate fanboy. He lived the fanboy dream. Uh, he was the biggest supporter of and I think chronicler of just early sci-fi, early horror. And, and I, I, don't think, I don't think either one of those genres in either print or you know video are the same today without his involvement. That's just always been my opinion, which is why I suggested him. 
And uh, now that you have done your your due diligence on your research, I think you see what I was talking about. Yeah, definitely. And he, I think it's one of those things where you could kind of say the art imitating life. Uh, and mm-hmm. obviously, I've been a fan of science fiction forever because it's it's great for the mind or the brain. But you also look at a lot of the stuff that he did that is now commonplace in the geek community. I mean, not just fanzines. I mean, you know, he he was basically reading magazines and making fanzines in like, you know, the 30s or so. And Mm -hmm. uh, when he went to the uh, convention in New York City, it was the first uh, sci-fi convention in New York City. Now they call it Worldcon, which is, I mean, San Diego Comic-Con is probably bigger, but Worldcon has been around longer. He actually went to the first Worldcon in 1939 and wore a sci-fi costume for it. So you could say that he was, you know, decades before the term came along, you could say he was the first cosplayer. You know, yeah. now yeah. really a convention of any size, you find somebody that's doing cosplay. Now, I think the uh, picture of him, which I'll put in the show notes at geeklyradio.com, I don't know if it's anything in particular because it says uh, futuristic costumes, like one word in mm-hmm. quotation marks. So it may have just kind of been a, an attempt at making a sci-fi outfit. Because I remember going way back to when I was in junior high school, I think, and we were going to have a dress like the future day. And I actually got the prize, which wasn't really a prize. It was like a candy bar or something like that. And the prize that I had that I was walking around is I, I just took the innards of my dad's security guard uniform, you know, the kind of puffy thing that you might put in. And it's not really for armor or anything like that, but it was like uh, the innards that you put into a jacket that, you know, when you want to turn it mm-hmm. into a winter jacket instead of a spring jacket. Yeah. Like, like polyfill. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I wore that and which had a zipper on it and all that. And then I wore a trench coat over it and it was influenced, I think probably from the, the cartoon cops, which is a sci-fi cop show, which only ran for a season or two. Sounds like and, it had a little bit of Blade Blade Runner in it as yeah, well, maybe. Yeah, a little exactly. Bit. Yeah. So, I, but now that's nothing like what Mr. Ackman's wearing in that picture. But I think it's that type of thing. It was like, okay, well, I want to dress like the future, so this is what I'm going to do. It seems like it was that that type of thing. And of course, 1939. You're talking. We don't have spaceships yet. We don't have jets. I mean, there were there were probably rockets, but you know, not not anything guided. So, I mean, really, the only you know, sci-fi that I mean, when you thought sci-fi from that era, you're talking, you know, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, of course, you know, mm-hmm. which was still years before that in a silent film. And like we talked about on our Flash Gordon induction, think about Flash Gordon at that time. Yeah, he was sci-fi and he was in space, but it still had a real Robin Hood kind of swashbuckling look and feel to it, didn't it? Right, right, yeah. So I mean, it's it's, and we're also talking 1939. Uh, the materials and 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 the that we have available now with plastics and things like that. Those weren't available back then combined with the fact that cosplay has become so popular that it's its own billion dollar industry in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, right now with it being Halloween and costumes being big, look, I mean, party city, which is a massive, you know, niche specialty store. They were going to go out of business if they didn't get into the Halloween thing, what they did about 10, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it saved their com- – they make enough money in October on costumes and things like that that people use for cosplay to stay in the red for the rest of the 11 months of the year. 
So he didn't have any of that either. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of amazing. Like I said, he was the he was the first cosplayer essentially. You think cosplayers get weird looks now? Imagine what you got back in 1939, mm-hmm. getting on the subway in New York and in that outfit like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's gotten to the point, like you said, with cosplay becoming its own genre. I mean, you know, it, it's essentially become mainstream, I think. Maybe not to oh, yeah. the level of the Oscars or something like that. But every year at C2E2, they have the World Cosplay Finals. And that's one of yeah. my favorite things to go to each year. They're professional cosplayers now. This is how they make their living. Mm-hmm. Going to conventions every weekend and winning these contests. And they have YouTube channels and, and social media footprint out there and think about it they're making a, uh, enough money off of playing dress up 24 7 365 to live off of it that's that's kind of kind of fascinating if you think about it and yeah like you said he's one of the first now that is of course the stuff he would do at conventions and, and such one thing that crossed my mind when i was reading about him w- was okay well what what did he do for a living and uh, any listeners that are thinking this, who might have heard the name and wondered, uh, his main job, uh, I, I guess you could call it, you know, what, what the career part of his job was, is he worked as a literary agent. And what a literary agent is, is they're essentially representatives for writers when it comes to other mediums. I think that's probably the best way I can put it. In other words, they might be the person that might talk to a film producer or a magazine publisher or something like that for what the writer might want to have for that. And you know, some of the names that he worked with over the years, uh, Ed Wood, yes, that Ed Wood, Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, L. Ron Hubbard, and he also worked with people like Ray Harryhausen and such. So you know, all those names that I just listed off, we probably would have never considered entering into the Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame, and he worked with all of them. I think that's uh, a perfect way to sum up his career. Yeah, and you, and you think back once again, you have to put yourself in this place and time. In the 30s and 40s, sci-fi, okay, horror had had its, its, its heyday, you know, it was in the late 30s, early 40s through Universal and film. Sci-fi was still not a very beloved genre of film or literature. Horror mm-hmm. really wasn't either because, you know, that stuff had come and gone with Universal and it was just a short period there. I mean, we go from from, you know, Bela Lugosi's Dracula to Albert and Costello meet meet Frankenstein what in like 6, 7, 8, eight years. So Something it's, like, it's not yeah. a long, it's not a long it's not a long it's not a long shelf life, is what I'm saying. The vast majority of how you if you were a sci-fi or horror mystery thriller writer in that era, you had to go to these pulp magazines that we've talked about before, like in the shadow and, and that episode, or you had to go to comic writers. That's just what you had to do to get your work published. And it was a burgeoning industry. And then this is just what you had to do. If you were a creator of sci-fi horror, true crime, mystery fantasy. And here's Forrest J. Ackerman, who's going to, People who are not fans of this don't understand it, don't realize there's a fan base for it, and convincing them to put money into it with the con- with the idea, their stuff's going to sell. You're going to make money on this. That's always what it boils down to in these kinds of things. It's about money. You know, it's business. And mm-hmm. when you're talking the names that you listed, you know, the Isaac Isomoffs, the Ray Bradberries, all, all Scientology jokes aside, L. Ron Hubbard, some you didn't name, Carl Sagan – uh, Harlan Ellison. These are you know, other people I know that he worked with at times. Do, do we have what we call geekdom 
without some of these names? No, no. I mean, it, it fits right in when we talk about uh, inducting people into the Lesson Geek Hall of Fame. It'll, they may not be the A-listers, but they may have influenced the A-listers. And you know, this is a perfect right. example of that. I love Harlan Ellison, okay? I love his writing. But him doing interviews, he's a very intelligent man, but he can be a bit opinionated and a bit off-putting. And I, I'm pretty sure if he went in to pitch his own stuff, whether it be sci-fi or horror, because he's done both, you know, uh, he probably is going to be met with some resistance by the suit types because mm-hmm. of, of his personality. Here's Forrest J. Ackerman. He can go in and, and he's the middleman, essentially. You know, he's the guy that can he's he's the, the you know, the, the guy who can convince the people who aren't fans that there's a market and, and to put money up for it. That's amazing right. to me. And, and I mean, if, if we're, we're going to talk about a lot of other things that Forrest did. But just his literary agent career alone and all the names that he worked with by itself merits induction into a Geek Hall of Fame, in my opinion. I mean, his personal collection of stuff that was at the Acker Mansion, as he calls it, I mean, that is now part of the Science Fiction Museum and Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, a couple other things about early works here that kind of set the stage. Uh, he was watching science fiction films even back before there were... Uh, talking movies back when they were silent films uh, he would read the amazing stories magazines when they were first published in the 20s and yes that is the same amazing stories that steven spielberg adopted to turn into that tv show in the 80s mm-hmm. now his early works uh, kind of getting into writing there was a fanzine called the time traveler and there was just the science fiction magazine two of the guys that worked on that magazine, as far as writing and providing art, were Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the men who created Superman. So, mm-hmm. so Ackerman can say that he worked with Siegel and Schuster before they created Superman, which is pretty mind-boggling when you think about it. In fact, there was a short story called Reign of the Superman, a singular, and this was before Clark Kent had been created. This was in the, the mid-30s. And it was a short story about a man who gains powers and then loses them. And that got published as that. And obviously, since Siegel and Schuster used that name first, they were able to use the name again when they created Clark Kent. But that name, Reign of the Superman, DC Comics kind of paid tribute to that when they did the whole Death of Superman story in the early to mid-90s, when they had the four wannabe Superman, you, you might say, was Superboy, Steel, Cyborg, and uh, Eradicator. That was called Reign of the Supermen, plural. And all this time, you know, they, I didn't really know that that was what they were paying tribute to by, by calling it that. I just thought it was a cool name. And right. one other thing about early works here, one of his pen names, and th- there were several. I mean, he, he used to like spell his name for us with like the number four, but he would use a pen name called Dr. Acula, which of course, when you abbreviate <laughs> doctor with the period and put Acula after that, it spells out Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think him and Stan Lee would have got along. I, fa- I, fa- I think they were friends or at least casual acquaintances. I, I'd be I surprised read- if they didn't know each other. Yeah. Uh, they And quite frankly, they, they look similar. Stan Lee was not a big man. Forrest was a bit on the tall side, probably about six one. But they had the same mustache, the same 
kind of rose tinted glasses and the same hairline. Mm-hmm. So they could almost pass for brothers, I think. Uh, Rod, you could throw Roger Corbin in there too when he has a mustache. The three of them could be triplets, but I, I digress. Where I got into my first not real big knowledge of, of Forrest was from the fanzines you're talking about. He did several, but the one that I remember was first published in the 50s. And I don't think it was a periodical like we have now with Starlog and Fangoria where they come out like a monthly or whatever. They were more like quarterly or whatever. But he, he was he helped to create and edited a an early horror fanzine called Famous Monsters of Filmland. And I think the original cover was the Boris Karloff Frankenstein's monster fitting, you know. Mm-hmm. This magazine covered the old universal era of horror, how they did the makeup effects and and, and how they adapted the stories to movies and uh, it, they have even done some in later years, and I think the first time I remember it was in a Fangoria, where they were talking about this old magazine essentially being the template for what Fangoria became in the 80s and 90s. And so, you know, Tony Temponi, who was the longtime editor-in-chief of Fangoria, has, has no, yet another name that's says I was influenced by Forrest J. Ackerman. Uh, that's, we try to do with modern horror movies and Fangoria what he did with the classics back in that. So... There's yet another. We've talked about cosplay. Now he's kind of helping to create fanzines, too. You're starting to see he, this guy really has his fingers in every pie of, of what we just take for granted as geekdom nowadays. Mm-hmm. That was my first my first running into him. Um, I think if you were to talk to Forrest himself, it, one of the greatest things that came out of his fandom was the fact that he met his wife through, through this stuff. Uh, she was a few years older than him, and she was a sci-fi writer as well. Met her, I think it. I think at one of the early world cons you're talking about, where he did the, the early cosplay. And she cosplayed with him. So, um, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was. I think it was every aspect of his life was about geekdom, about sci-fi, fantasy, horror, mystery. That just, it's what he loved, and he li- he lived the geek's dream to be able to make a living out of the stuff that we sit here and do a podcast for fun for. You know, <laughs> right. Right, and he mar- he did marry late. I believe it was in mm-hmm. the 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 fifty the maybe late forties or early fifties. So, right, you know, uh, that that's something I'm sure a lot of geeks can, uh, <laughs> you, uh, 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 you know, you pr- relate, relate to that. Relate to that, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, well, I mean, he's if, if he's the ultimate geek, he's just showing y'all how to do it. You stick to it, you'll find that one good girl's into the same stuff you're into. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, an interesting thing, since we are doing. We are talking about Forrest because of his ties to the horror communities and this being Halloween-themed uh, lesser-known Geek Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the famous or rather infamous name of Anton Shandor LeVay. Yes. Of course, he is the – for those that don't know, he is the founder of the, of the Church of Satan. Uh, he was the man who penned the Satanic Bible. Uh, he was – if you were a headbanger like I was in the 80s, he did a lot, a lot of media – during uh, the satanic panic of the 80s. That, that's yeah. probably where you first heard of him, wasn't it? Yeah, this is about the time where they'd be talking about, uh, oh, yeah, if you play Led Zeppelin backwards, you hear prayers to Satan or something like that, you know? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, you, you read the chick tracks that playing Dungeons and Dragons was a pathway to, pathway to, to Satan worship. But right. I, I digress. For those that don't know, LeVay did not start the Church of Satan until the I think it was like 63 or 64. He, in, 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 a, in, a, in a house... They called the I think they called the the Black Beauty or something. It was a big black house that sit up on a hill in San Francisco. Uh, by this point, Forrest was living in San Francisco. But before Anton Lavey 
started the Church of Satan, before he wrote the Satanic Bible, he used to have weekly get-togethers of about 20 people at the house there in San Francisco. I think it was on Thursday nights. And it was not it was not like a, a, a black mass or anything. It was just intellectuals uh, that discussed esoterics, metaphysics, religion, sci-fi. It, it was, you know, uh, it was it was smart people talking smart stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And he hosted these because whether you like Levey or not, and you have, and I understand he's a very polarizing figure. The guy was smart. Okay, you're not you can't you can't deny the guy was 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 intelligent. Um, Forrest J. Acker was one of the early attendees at those things. It was pretty much a regular, along with politicians, local politicians there in San Francisco. And uh, Fritz Lieber, who um, is a – Fritz Lieber, for those that don't know, is he pretty much essentially created what we consider the, the sword and sorcery fantasy novel. He influenced mm-hmm. like Conan the Barbarian. His biggest story was an ongoing storyline of two characters called Farfid, who was the prototype – barbarian warrior and the gray mouser who was the prototype cloaked thief rogue character in D&D so much so that right after wizards of the coast bought the rights to D&D from TSR they bought the rights to farfer and great farfer and gray mouser from fritz and incorporated them to the point where they are now canon in, in the gray hawk campaign setting so he was this is where forrest j ackerman met him so, you know, I just thought with was being Halloween, that's interesting. I'm so I'm not saying Forrest Jackman was a Satanist. Please don't. don't <laughs> like, if a matter of fact, Forrest Jackman was very, very open about he was an atheist. He didn't believe in any kind of higher being, you know, yeah. uh, but it but it does seem like you know, just to uh, make sure we we uh, get it out there. I don't think he was opposed to people having an organized religion. Just wasn't his no. thing. So you know, as, no, as I like no. to say, tolerance. No. You know, right, right. I think he, I think Forrest was a very open-minded guy. He liked to think, and Anton Lavey, for whatever his purposes were, was leading this group, and it had a lot of the prominent intellectuals in the San Francisco area. I understand the attraction to going, and like I point out, this is before Lavey, you know, adopted the. The, the the over the top image with the goat you know the goatee and the you know the the eyebrows and everything it's before this you know that came years later not years later but about five years later he was just it was just this weird dude who hosted these parties where you talked about things like I I think Ron L Ron Hubbard was someone maybe that's maybe maybe that's where Scientology came from. <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, personal note Scientology to me is because L Ron Hubbard. How, as good a literary agent as, as Forrest was, some of the stuff that L. Ron Hubbard wrote, Forrest couldn't convince anybody to buy it. So L. Ron created a religion so he could get a tax write off on I'm publishing stuff that nobody else would publish. But I digress. I'll get on myself. That's my opinion. But, and yes, Tom Cruise, you can send me your thousand word blog post about how wrong I am. I don't care. I'm entitled to my opinion. Uh, you know, I'm not saying I hate Scientologists. Uh, I'm just saying, you know, everybody's entitled to their own beliefs. Just, just not for me. It is what it is, right? So, you know, Tom Cruise, send me your thousand-word blog post. I won't be offended. I, you have every right to defend your beliefs. Uh, I just like to, to pick. I don't hate Scientologists. And, and all joking aside, L. Ron Hubbard, jokes aside, was a very, very important sci-fi writer. So you can't take that away right. from the man. You know, with it just being Halloween, I thought that would be an interesting thing to bring up. That You know, <laughs> here's the guy who would go on to become the, the leader of the Church of Satan and those were the kind of circles. I mean, he he covered the gamut, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, oh yeah. He's yeah. he's hanging out with people like that, but he's at the same time hanging out with 
you know, people like, you know, people like Isaac Isimov and influencing people like Spielberg and Lucas and everybody in between. He's just a fascinating guy to me. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking about uh, writers, you, you were talking about being in uh, California and the uh, he was in the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society, which apparently they just kind of met at a restaurant and, and discussed stuff. But some of the people that would have been part of this, you have uh, Robert A. Heinlein, you know, so, you, you know, his, his name kind of speaks for so a lot, a lot of books he did. Um, those that don't know, he wrote The Puppet Masters, which was the basis for both the original and the remake version of Evasion of the Body Snatchers. So, and yeah, he, and he also uh, wrote the uh, Starship Troopers book. That you know, Yes, they, he did. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, Emil Pataya, or is it Pataja? Uh, Lee Brackett, who uh, I think Ardent Star Wars fans will remember, she actually, her final work was submitting a draft for Empire Strikes Back. And uh, could, but but she died uh, two years before Empire Strikes Back came out. For and, horror fans, that the Lee Brackett you're speaking of was homaged mm-hmm. by John Carpenter by 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 naming the sheriff of Haddonfield Lee Brackett in the Halloween franchise. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there you go. There you go. And uh, another one, Jack Williamson or John Stuart Williamson, and he, he was another one of those kind of uh, pioneering type uh, type writers. So again, we're talking all these legendary people that he befriended and or worked with i think at one point he was even president of that group wasn't he did your research show you that i am not sure i it would not surprise me but uh uh, i don't have that confirmed at the moment well i would think with 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 force you know championing these old horror movies and sci-fi stuff with things like the fanzines and the time period we're talking now uh, we were talking off mic essentially genre genre you know, uh, fiction, sci-fi, fantasy, horror, were pretty much con- contained to the pages of comic books, pulp magazines, and, and novels and short stories up until about the 60s. Uh, you had that brief run with, you know, horror, universal, late 30s, early 40s. You had that brief run of sci-fi stuff in the 50s that was really just veiled red scare. I think we've agreed on that before, too. You oh, know, yeah. and fear of, of, of atomic of atomic power and what we were getting into is as, as you know, humanity was getting into at the time, but you have psycho that comes out in 1960, 10, 11 years later, 70, 71, 2001, a space odyssey comes out all of a sudden sci-fi and horror are actually legitimate subgenres of Hollywood now that major studios will tackle. And I think Forrest being in the Southern California at that time probably had a lot to do with that. What say ye? I think it's I think it's very possible. And I, I had said that I think Star Wars may have been what made science fiction like truly mainstream, just because of all the money it made. But then when you think about it, stuff like Planet of the Apes or uh, you know two thousand one and such, those those movies in that series are kind of con- could be considered. I don't know if literature is the right word, but certainly certainly pop culture. Right. I, I and and I don't know why when you talk genre. He's always three, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. Fan- sci-fi and, and horror, because of Psycho, because of 2001, Planet of the Apes, Star Wars, Jaws, they kind of always have stayed around. Fantasy's never really gotten that foothold. You've had stuff like Lord of the Rings that's, you know, won awards and stuff, um, but then you also have things like Dragon Slayer. Yeah, or, <laughs> you know, or, or, or Krull, you know. <laughs> or Krull, which is, which is 
let's be honest, the guys that made Crow admitted they were trying to rip off Star Wars, but I digress. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's fantasy for whatever reason has never caught on in Hollywood, and I don't know why. It just hasn't. It, like I said, they've had their Lord of the Rings. I think Dark Crystal was very well thought of in the 80s, you know, and, right. and, and doing no small part to the amazing genius that was Jim Henson, I think, more than just the storyline. Uh, you know, uh, quick, quick sidebar on Dark Crystal. I think that movie was truly ahead of its time. Uh, I, mean, I do. I do, too. I'll, one of the reasons why I think it's held up so well is probably because of the puppetry. But, you know, you watch the Netflix prequel and a lot of those characters are still puppets. So, you know, sure. it, it, sure. it speaks volumes that it was influenced so well that instead of going with a CGI fest for uh, a, another story, they still went with the the puppetry approach. I think another example from that era of fantasy not being strong like horror and sci-fi, but one movie hitting was Labyrinth. Once again, because of mm-hmm. the magic of Jim Henson's puppets and the greatness that was David Bowie. I think we can agree on that. And Jennifer Conley was great. It was her first role. So, I mean, there were yeah. a lot of things going for it. Yeah, well, remember, there there were uh, two main co-stars in Labyrinth. There was uh, David Bowie and David Bowie's Package. Yes, yes, yes. That didn't hurt with didn't hurt with a certain demographic, did it? <laughs> uh, but but we digress. <laughs> you know, uh, you brought up the the, the Acker Mansion earlier. Uh, I, it was one of those things on my bucket list. I was never able to get because, we, of course, we've lost Forrest. What was it about? You got about, this death about, about what, ten what? years. Yeah, it, yeah, it was uh, two thousand eight, I think. Yeah, but he actually had a home there in the Hollywood Hills. That was a small Spanish ranch kind of you know mini. Those mansion. It was just wasn't you wasn't huge, but it was bigger than your average home. The whole back's end of it was dedicated to sci-fi, fantasy, and horror memorabilia, stuff like original scripts, uh, screenplays, uh, p- p- posters, props, and costumes worn by people. Just amazing the amount of memorabilia that he had in his own personal collection, and he gave uh, you know scheduled tours. You could go online and. And I think before then you could do it by mail before the advent of the Internet set up a time and he would take you through it. I, I saw a documentary years ago with a um, with with a young filmmaker. I, I can't remember their name. They never became anybody of them going, you know, Forrest taking him through. And like he had um, a ring that Bella had worn in his Dracula role that he had given to Forrest and Forrest kept in it, that kind of stuff. That's mm-hmm. just, it's like to me what and he, just you know walls and walls of these posters and this guy flipping through all these these old movie posters it's a it's a geek's you know fantasy are you kidding me I would have and unfortunately I never got around to going to to go to that but you brought up that most of that collection's been been donated to where now uh, it's become the science fiction museum and hall of fame I, I'm I'm assuming that his 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 estate has something to 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 do with that. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is, and and it very well may have been something. I don't know this for sure, just one man speculation. That's that type of thing that probably got worked out when he was uh, still with us. You know, donated it probably. Yeah, maybe. yeah, he probably put something in writing as far as where it was all going to go. And I mean, like he he was 92 years old when he died, so by all accounts, he lived a long, full life. But he up until his up until his last days, I think he was. Before he had some of, had his health issues that took him from us, he was still giving these tours two or three mm-hmm. times a week. That's amazing, you know. It, it's he's the like you said, he's a Jimmy Olsen. He made friends with everybody. He knew everybody <laughs> and sci-fi and horror and fantasy, and he was friends with them, and and they respected him. 
and he collected their memorabilia. I, I've made the I made the analogy earlier about you know him and Stan Lee. Uh, for me, Forrest J. Ackerman was as important to keeping the names of horror, sci-fi, and fantasy alive in the mainstream's conscious as much as Stan Lee was comics, in my opinion. You've done some research now. Or am, am I am I over, overstating his importance, or do you think I'm about right there? No, 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 uh, not, not overstating at all. I, the best way I think I can put it is, you know how they have like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon for you know mm-hmm. movies and such? Not necessarily for movies, but I think when it comes like to geekery in general there's no six degrees of forrest jackman it's it's the one degree or no degree he knew everybody <laughs> he <know>? did <laughs> he did i mean when you think of when you we we talked about the people he directly worked with we haven't even talked about the people that have openly stated were influenced by him people like george lucas people like steven spielberg people like like john landis people like john carpenter people like like uh uh quentin tarantino robert rodriguez yeah. I mean, uh, Gene, Gene Simmons and Kiss. I mean, once I heard that, I'm like, yeah. okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes you know? <laughs> yeah. I, if you want to go the music crowd, I, I there are several musicians. I know uh, uh, he was. I, I think he, I think he was friends with with Michael Jackson. There you go. Mm-hmm. Right. Danny, I mean, he Danny was, Elfman. Yeah. He, Danny Elfman. He was. He was. Uh, uh, he was uh, loved by Rob Zombie and Alice Cooper, Marilyn Manson. No shocker with those three guys. I know, right? But uh, b- big friends with Kurt Hammett, the the guitarist from uh, Metallica. Because because both are big fans of those classic universal horror facts. There are several guitars that that Kurt plays on stage with that has the Bell Lugosi Frankenstein monster head on the body. You know, a picture of it. He's now getting out of just films and literature, and he's going into other areas of entertainment now where he's influencing people and he's friends with them. And and, and I I said it just a while ago, and I stand by it. There is there is not sci-fi horror and fantasy, which is essentially geekdom. I think wrapped up in a ball, it doesn't exist in the way we know it without Forrest Jackman walking this earth and doing what he did. Just my opinion. Yeah. And when you talk about movies and such, I mean, he has, if you go to IMDb, he has 79 acting credits. Now, granted, there are most of them, if not all of them, are essentially cameos. You know, they might might be kind of similar to how Stan Lee was worked into all the Marvel movies. You know, he, he didn't really... Mm have any big parts but usually what he did he did was memorable but yeah 70 so you have 79 acting credits uh in a career that goes back to basically the 40s so right and hmm. and i I believe in a lot of those are a lot like stan lee's in the fact that he played himself Mm -hmm. he he was i i he just well i just an amazing guy i just i can't i would kill to have been the guy who got to read early drafts by isaac isimov that mm-hmm. alone, you know, he's probably there. I would dare say because he was he was Isomoff's literary agent there. Some of Isomoff's Isomoff's later works. The first person outside of Isaac that ever read him was probably Forrest J. Ackerman. Think about that. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine that as a sci-fi geek that you are? <laughs> yeah, or uh, you know the it's kind of a famous uh, Stephen King story that uh, I, I think he was doing a signing or something like that and. Forrest showed up with a draft of a story that Stephen King wrote when he was 11. So somehow he managed to get a hold of a Stephen King story that King himself wow. had submitted and I guess it must have not gotten back to him and somehow Forrest got it and brought it back to him. I've heard that story before. It was one of those magazines we're talking about that that was the only way as a sci-fi or horror writer you could get your work out back then because it wasn't the industry that it is now. 
I want to say I've heard this, a similar story with him and Robert Zemeckis too, but I could be wrong. You know, wouldn't shock me. Wouldn't shock me at all. He obviously was not the creative guy of all these other people we're talking about, but he might have been the muse. <laughs> you know, he might have been the inspiration because you know, I just, I just don't like I said, I don't think it exists with, with without him. And and um, it's, I need to find the name of that documentary, ladies and gentlemen. If I could find it. I will get. I will find out where it is and get get Seth to put that in in the show notes as well because it was um, yeah. it was it, it was it was a, it was a documentary just about fandom in general and this guy getting to put on Bell Lugosi's ring as a horror guy. I'm going okay. I, I I could I could die right now and be happy. I've worn Bell Lugosi's Dracula ring. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> that that would be like that would be like you getting to have a lightsaber duel with Alec Guinness, I think, to put it in comparison. Yeah, to you, yeah, you know? something, <laughs> something like that, or you and McGregor, or Ray Park, or whoever, you know. <laughs> same type thing. I mean, Disney's doing a good job with the Star Tour stuff and the Star Wars, but it's not the same, you know. But I digress. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it's it, it is kind of staggering when you think about it. You know that you know the so we're, we're talking essentially seventy years, seventy or eighty years of, of contribution. But I think in, in the end, what he would probably want to be remembered as is what everybody does is that he was he was just a, a fan and a proponent of the sci-fi fantasy, uh, you know, escape. I think is probably the best way to, to put it. You know, the, you know, the literature that happens. It's, it's it's what got me into sci-fi and, and fantasy, and, and fantasy not as much as sci-fi, but you know, the whole sci-fi and uh, robots and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's it's a great. Uh, Escape for the mind, I think, is probably the best way I could put it. That's purely my my words, but I think that's what a lot of the sci-fi scholars think of it, and I think it's what he helped prove could become a, a mainstream thing. I mean, am I, am I making sense with that that summary? Oh yeah, I think that relates back to the discussion groups he would go to that that Levey ran. You know, it's it's we weren't saying that he was a Satanist. We were just mm-hmm. saying he was an intellect. You know. And I think he and the kind of people that LeVay was gathering at those discussions were uh, talking about deep stuff. Like we said, metaphysics and esoterics and philosophy and religion and politics and sociology. Well, there's a lot of that, a lot of a lot more of that in sci-fi, fantasy and horror than non-geeks understand. And I completely agree with you. Most of us that are geeks that are attracted to that form of entertainment, it is an escapism for us. You know, but in that escapism, it allows us to think about things in a much deeper way in the real world. You know, it, it's um, I am the biggest popcorn movie fan. You'll, I mean, I'm I am fine with checking my brain in for 10 minutes or, you know, for a couple hours paying for you know, my overpriced Diet Coke and popcorn and watching something that doesn't really say a lot. Yes, I'm talking to you, MCU. OK, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time. You know, that's what I love about the stuff that Forrest was a proponent of. Halloween, if you approach the movie Halloween, which we all know is my favorite movie, you can approach it that way and be very satisfied. It's an entertaining movie. You know, it's an hour and a half. It's got, it's got you know, good jump scares, suspenseful. It's well shot, well, well fleshed out characters. Uh, uh, it's exciting. And at the end, oh, there's, there's that, you know, that, that twist ending. Did Michael survive or not? We don't know, right? That's all entertaining. And that's great. But if you want to, you can take that and you can go home and think about some of the themes it brings up and it gets a whole lot deeper than that. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, talking about this uh, IMDb page, I mean, how many other people on their 
resume as far as what they've appeared in can say that they've been in uh, King Kong, uh, the Kentucky Fried movie, <laughs> the Michael Jackson thriller video, and a Beverly Hills Cop movie. I mean, that, that's kind of all over the place there as far as <laughs> as far as genres there. Well, and, and for what it's worth, people did uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Eddie Murphy's a huge fan of horror movies. Remember, he's the one who wanted to do Vampire in Brooklyn. That wasn't a Wes Craven mm-hmm. thing. That was an Eddie Murphy thing, you know? Uh, he also liked sci-fi. I mean, it was bomb, but he did Pluto Nash. You know, yeah. I mean, I, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie Murphy's not much older than you and me. He's just a kid that grew up on Long Island in the 70s. He watched all these exploitation and, 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 and drive-in type movies. You know, he watched sci-fi and fantasy and horror. You don't think he wasn't a fan of that stuff? And, you know, so he probably heard Forrest's name at some point, too, and said, Hey, we need to get this dude in this movie, you know? <laughs> right. And even then, I mean, obviously I don't want to get sidetracked on Eddie Murphy, but I, the Golden Child had some horror elements in it. It was just a, it was just PG horror elements. Yeah, well, and it had had, had one, another another like subgenre of all this stuff we're talking about, chop sake, kung fu movies, mm-hmm. right? That's yeah. another smaller niche part of, of uh, you know, geekdom. Right, I mean, right. and here we go in the uh, <laughs> the late 90s, early 2000s. He, he's credited as part of Horror Kung Fu Theater. I mean, that show sounds like it would have you all over it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's that's right up my alley, man. That's right up my alley. I mean, it's it's if you don't think Kung Flu is, is, is influential to sci-fi and geekdom, I have two words for you. The Matrix. Hmm. That's a high-end Hong Kong action movie with a sci-fi twist. Are we, are we in agreement on that? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I don't want to speak for the dead, but I, I'm pretty sure Force probably liked that movie too because it had stuff like, yeah, I get this, I get this, yeah, it's totally up my alley, you know? <laughs> so anything else that you wanted to add before we uh, wrap up here? No, no, just uh, just, just like I said, if you don't know who Forrest is, realize if you're a geek, he probably had his finger in, in either creating something you liked or influenced something that you liked. He's that important. Look him up. He's a fascinating man to, to look into. And like you said, I think at the end of the day, the thing he would want to be most remembered for, he was a fan. He was a supporter. He was an ardent supporter of the art form that is what we call geekdom now, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's why we're able to do podcasts like this now is because of people like him that stuck up for it. And with that, we conclude our 18th edition this Geekville Radio Anthology for National Podcast Post Month, a.k.a. NAPOD POMO 2023. Join us tomorrow where we will be stepping into the TARDIS. Yes, Doctor Who. As many listeners know, we have a Doctor Who-themed podcast called Examining the Doctor, where myself and Mark Short talk about and give commentary to Doctor Who episodes, both classic and modern. There's a little something for every Whovian in Examining the Doctor. That'll be tomorrow. This is Geekville Radio. You can find us at geekvilleradio.com. You can find us also wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We're all over Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, you name it. Just do a search for Geekville Radio. You'll find us and our family of podcasts ranging from Doctor Who to pro wrestling to horror, pretty much everything in between. Give us a follow, give us a review, give us a rating. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what we can improve on. I always appreciate feedback, especially when it's genuine. You can review the show. You can post at geekvideo.com. And we also have the social media pages, Facebook, X slash Twitter, 
and Instagram at Geekville Radio. So don't be a stranger. Stop by. Let us know what you're thinking. And we'll be back tomorrow with an episode of Examining the Doctor where Mark and I look at the episode Dalek, which was the premiere of the Daleks in modern day Doctor Who. So we will join you tomorrow. Take care. Geekville Radio is not sponsored or endorsed by any products or services unless specifically stated. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests do not reflect the views of GeekvilleRadio.com, the Wrestling Brethren Podcast, Family, or any of their affiliates. Some media used in Geekville Radio is the product of their respective copyright holders, all rights reserved. Also on his IMDb page are The Devil Ant in 1999 and Devil Ant 2 in 2002. In The Devil Ant, Forrest is credited as Man Attacked by the Devil Ant. And in Devil Ant 2, he's credited as Man who survived the attack by the devil ant. <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't a red shirt. <laughs> right. <laughs> Geek Bill Radio.